God is the one who is able to glorify his name through us, for he is a glorious God, and we will see that evident for us in this passage this morning. Luke chapter 9, let's begin reading in verse 27, verse 27, and then we'll read through verse 36. God's word given to his people for our good, let's give our attention to its reading. Luke 9, beginning in verse 27. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. and They were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son. Whom I have chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. Amen. We've probably all had times in our life where we experience or see something about which we're so excited that we feel like we have to talk about it. We have to tell someone about it. Perhaps the cutest or most charming examples of this are when little children experience something that is very exciting to them. They come home having to tell mom or dad or their brothers or sisters about it. They can't stop talking about it. They try to pull you into what they have experienced. Sometimes these kinds of experiences can be truly life-changing. And that is indeed... What we have today, this event is called the Transfiguration, and it changed the life moving forward of Peter and James and John, the apostles who experienced it. The importance of the Transfiguration is hard to overstate, because as these three apostles carried the saving message of Jesus throughout the world, they would talk about this. They would talk about this event uh, again and again. Someone might ask Peter, how do you know that Jesus is the Son of God? And Peter would say, because I saw his glory. Listen to how he talks about the transfiguration in one of his letters, 2 Peter chapter 1. And he's talking about why the the gospel is true, why Jesus really is who he claimed to be. 2 Peter 1 verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he goes on to talk about how he heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's talking about the transfiguration. So Peter would give credence, he lent credence to the the truthfulness of his gospel through this event, the transfiguration. It shaped 
his life. We read that the three apostles who see this are able to see his glory, see his glory. They were able to witness the glorious Jesus. What does the glory of Jesus mean? What does the glory of Jesus teach us? That is what we are aiming to consider today. We will see three things. We will see that the glorious Jesus is our freedom. The glorious Jesus is our freedom. We will see that the glorious Jesus is Scripture's fulfillment. And we will see that the glorious Jesus is God's final word. Freedom, fulfillment, and God's final word. First, then, the glorious Jesus is our freedom. We pick up in verse 27. This was the last verse of the passage from last week. But Luke ties Verse 27 together with with this passage. We read he intentionally does that. Eight days after Jesus said this, he says at the beginning of verse 28. Jesus says something in 27 that's really interesting. That There are some who are standing there who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. See the kingdom of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have Jesus saying this right before the transfiguration, what, what is today's passage. So there is some way in which it is tied together, that the, that the seeing of the kingdom of God, that is partially fulfilled in this transfiguration episode. Peter, James, and John are three examples of those who see the kingdom of God in its power, the glory of the kingdom of God with their eyes. There are a few different episodes in Jesus' life that visually testify to who he is. The transfiguration is one. There is the empty tomb scene later on in Luke, and there is also the ascension, these different times in the life of Jesus where there is this visual testimony to who he is. They testify to that truth. So it's not surprising that Luke would have this account in chapter 9, right? There are all these, it seems like every passage, Luke is addressing the question, who is Jesus? We have seen Herod ask that question and the people answering. We have seen Jesus ask that question to his closest disciples and Peter answering. In today's passage, we will see that God testifies to who Jesus is as well. So verse 27, then we see partially fulfilled in this transfiguration account. In verse 28, they go up to a mountain to pray, Jesus and these three apostles, Peter, James, and John. We're not told which mountain it is here in Luke. There's a couple of things, though, that we know biblically about mountains. There are places where you often go to meet with God. And there are also places that are isolated. It's a bit of a wilderness place, withdrawn from Uh, from normal society. So it's withdrawn. It's a place where you go to meet with God. And as in other places of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is praying when something significant happens. As he prays, his face changes in appearance and his robes become as bright as flashes of lightning. I didn't make the trip down to Carbondale a couple weeks ago to see the eclipse, I finally got around to watching some video footage of it this past week, and it really was quite amazing, and in some ways uh, deeply moving to see this this event happen with the the, the sun and and the moon and and darkness coming over various places uh, within our own nation. And a lot of people 
were having emotions that were so intense that they could not verbalize what they were feeling. So I'm considering what's going on here, and and I think that what it is, is people are reminded that in many ways, if you look at each individual on earth, we, we think about life and we feel very important to ourselves often, right? That's naturally what we feel. The world revolves around us. But it's in moments like that where you realize that the world really does not revolve around you. It makes you feel small. It makes you feel a bit vulnerable. If you worship the one true God, it's a reminder that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Someone is making the earth go around the sun. Someone is is moving the, the sun and the moon and the stars all in perfect harmony. It makes us feel small and fragile. Whatever you feel with the eclipse, I think that it probably pales in comparison to what was going on on this mountain with the transfiguration. There are similarities, aren't there? The bright flashes of white light that we say that we see were coming forth from Jesus. And as this happens, Jesus is found not to be alone, but he is accompanied by a couple of famous characters from the Old Testament. In verse 30, Luke uses a phrase that says, Behold, two men. That would be a literal translation. Behold, two men. Luke is wanting us to to notice these two people that enter the scene. They end up being Moses and Elijah. And Luke uses this same exact phrase in the Greek, both at the empty tomb account in Luke chapter 24 and in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven. Behold, two men. And I think it's probably good to determine that those two men in Luke chapter 24 and in Acts 1 are also Moses and Elijah. But why are they here? Why do Moses and Elijah show up? A few different reasons, and we'll talk about a couple of them this morning. But the first is to signify that the last days, or the end times, have come in Jesus Christ. The prophets would often talk about the the, the blessedness of the last days, the redemption that God will bring at the end of the age. And Moses and Elijah really are thought of as the chief prophets And their appearance with Jesus shows that what the prophets had predicted, what the prophets spoke about, those days have now come in Jesus Christ. And look at the conversation that they're having. Here they are arrayed in glorious splendor. Obviously a very significant moment in the life and the ministry of Jesus, but they're talking about something. In verse 31, it says they are speaking about his departure. Notice that word in verse 31, departure. That means they're speaking about his death. That was sort of an idiomatic way to talk about death at that time. And we still use that sort of language. We speak about death sometimes in terms of departure. He or she has passed on. So they're talking about the death of Jesus. It's put front and center. And Jesus has begun to talk about his death with his disciples. So they're discussing it in uh, now clearer ways. But we must notice also, it's something that we wouldn't notice in our translation, but we must take note of the word that Luke uses to speak of the departure. The Greek word is the word exodus. That's what he uses for departure. The Greek word that Luke uses is exodus. They were talking about the exodus of Jesus. So here we begin to see the significance of why in this account they're, they're on the mountain 
They're in the wilderness. They're meeting with God. Jesus' face is shining brightly, just like Moses' face would shine brightly when he met with God on Mount Sinai and in the wilderness. It all feels quite similar to the first exodus, the exodus in the Old Testament. And what is it that God did in the first exodus? We could probably summarize it many different ways, but three thoughts this morning for what God did in the first exodus. The first thing is he defeated evil. He defeated evil by sending plagues upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh. He defeated evil and showed that he was more powerful than the forces of evil. The second is he creates a people for himself, his chosen that had been in Egypt, enslaved. He brings them out. He creates them as a nation for himself. And then third, he gives them a place where they can worship him freely. He brings them to Mount Zion where they can worship and they can serve him. So defeat evil, create a people, and then give them the freedom to worship him. The Exodus is the salvation picture of the Old Testament. Luke does not use this word by chance. He's using it because he's wanting to show us something very specific. He wants to show us that what Jesus is doing is a new and a better exodus. That's why he uses that word. In his life and through his death and resurrection, Jesus will defeat evil. This is what he has come to do, to loose the bonds of sin and death that have shackled humanity. He's not going to send plagues upon a particular nation or a particular ruler. He has come to do something deeper than that, to ultimately defeat evil. Jesus will create a people for himself, and that all who believe in him will be given ultimate liberation, freed from the enslavement to sin. You see how the Bible constantly is using this imagery of the Exodus to make us think about our own salvation. Jesus gives us that liberation. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 1. And he will lead his people so that they may worship him in spirit and in truth, not to an earthly Zion, not to an earthly temple, but to a heavenly and an eternal one. This is the work of Jesus, a new, a better exodus, setting his people free from the shackles of sin and death in order to grant us an eternal kingdom, an eternal inheritance that will never fade away. So, brothers and sisters, set your eyes fully, set your hearts fully on that hope. Jesus is our freedom. The glorious Jesus is our freedom, our exodus that has set us free. In him, the last days have come, the The end times have come. It has been the last days since he came and he lived and died and was raised again. The New Testament writers consider this. Since it is the last days, Paul writing so many, many, many years ago, already the last days when he was writing, the days are short, he would say. So how are we to live? If we have been liberated by Jesus, if he is our freedom, how are we then to live? In this time, since the days are short, we are to pursue godliness. We are to pursue a a deeper faith. We are to pursue virtue in our lives, to see the way God has ordered the world and called us to live. We are to pursue knowledge, right? Growing in our understanding of the word of God, always learning about what he has taught us, what he has proclaimed to us, learning self-control, faith, Virtue, knowledge, self-control, 
godliness. That is the way we ought to live if we understand that Jesus is our freedom, if we understand the exodus that he has brought us into, the exodus that he has given to us, liberating us from the shackles of sin and death. We must realize that it teaches us about the value of his kingdom, that this life must serve the interests of the age to come, to set our eyes on Christ, to set our eyes on the treasures that are in heaven. But in order to accomplish all of this, Jesus must do so from a specific place on earth, Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, so that he might show us that all of the things that the earthly Jerusalem points to are fulfilled in him. He is not only our freedom, Jesus is the scripture's fulfillment. It's a bit odd, isn't it? In verse 32, we read that the apostles were sleepy, the sleeping. This is Uh, probably even much worse than being the family that drove down to Carbondale a couple of weeks ago with all of your young kids. You're wanting them to experience something that would be life-changing, and I'm sure there were families that did this. And they go down there, and their kids were so giddy and excited all the way down that when it finally comes time to see the, the eclipse, they're sleeping. It's much worse than that in today's passage. The Peter, James, and John are sleeping. Some scholars have said that this, in a way, testifies to the truthfulness of the Christian message. Because if you were trying to create a myth that people would follow, you never would have portrayed the founders, the ones who went and established this religion out in the world, as such clumsy knuckleheads. Peter, James, and John, this great, wonderful occurrence of the transfiguration happening and They're sleeping. The apostles are often clumsy, portrayed in this way, and that actually is, in a funny way, it uh, it testifies to the truthfulness of the Gospels. Once they literally wake up, though, they're scrambling to figure out what to do, and oftentimes when uh, nobody knows what to do or what to say, uh, Peter is the one who works up the courage or is overzealous enough to suggest something. So he suggests something to Jesus, and what he suggests shows that he he knows his Bible, his Old Testament, but he has yet to clearly understand who Jesus is. Master, he says, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters. The end of this verse says that he did not know what he was saying. What is Peter suggesting? What he's suggesting uh, comes from the book of Leviticus. He wants them to have an impromptu Sukkot festival or the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles right there on the mountain. This was a harvest festival. When the year's crop had been brought in, Israel would celebrate what God had provided for them and they would remember all that he had done. We read about this in Leviticus chapter 23 called, as I said, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It was a way, really, to remember the exodus, to celebrate God's bringing his people out of Egypt, his liberating them. Each Israelite family would build a temporary dwelling place, and perhaps you have seen this in, uh, in the month of October, if, if you know that there is a, a Jewish family somewhere, they will have oftentimes a, a sort of impromptu shelter built outside of their house, oftentimes now it's, it's more decorative and has fruit sort of hanging from from the top of it. They would build these temporary dwelling places to, to bring to mind the time when they did not have a permanent home, 
when God had brought them out of Egypt and they were wandering through the wilderness. And they were to be made out of special kinds of wood. Special kinds of wood from trees that were considered the most glorious trees in all of Israel. And the glory of the tree used, using that wood for the shelter, was supposed to remind them of the glory of God. To teach them that when they are without shelter, when they are without refuge, the glory of God is to be their covering. The glory of God is to cover and overshadow them. It not only pointed back, it allowed them to realize that in the present, the glory of God is really your true shelter. It also pointed forward to a time when God would once again lead his people out of bondage and return Zion to its former glory. There are psalms that they would sing during this special festival. Psalm 118 is one of the the prominent ones. Psalm 118 says this, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 118 goes on to say this, and it takes the imagery, the solidity of a building, the security that you feel in a building, And it applies it to God, saying, that is the kind of security you ought to feel when you consider your God. Psalm 118 goes on to say, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. See, God is a refuge and a shelter for his people. With all of that in mind, why is Peter wrong in what he is saying? Why is his suggestion so off? It is because in suggesting that they build booths or tent, tents, Peter is trying to, in a sense, press the rewind button. He is trying to go backwards in redemptive history because he is trying to replace the fulfillment, that's Jesus, with the symbol The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, pointed forward to Jesus and the glory that would be present with Jesus and his coming and the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascends and the way that the glory of God would exist in the midst of his people and overshadow them and be given within them as well. So Peter is trying to replace the fulfillment, Jesus, with the symbol All these temporary dwellings, they pointed forward to the consummation of that festival, Jesus. So Peter will come to see that he does not need this symbol because the reality has come. The overshadowing presence of the glory of God comes in Jesus. Too often, we tend to approach, or or various people, some who bear the name Christian, tend to approach Jesus in the way that Peter does here. Oh yes, I I, I understand Jesus. I understand who he is. It, It fits into my normal conception of religion, and I am able to keep it compartmentalized in this part of my life over here. But the glorious Jesus is not one over whom we can exercise any control. In the Reformed tradition, we emphasize word and sacrament. We emphasize allowing scripture to shape our worship and our practice and our piety, not because we we exercise control over the work of God, 
but precisely the opposite, because God is so beyond us that the only way we could rightfully approach the mystery of who he is is by letting scripture shape all of the things that we do. For that reason, we we must not allow the fact that we come together week after week and oftentimes do similar things, follow a similar pattern in our worship service, we, not, we must not allow that to think that we exercise some kind of control over the glorious Jesus. He is the one who condescends to us in his grace. He is the God who is infinitely glorious. Many people who bear the name of Christian, that maybe nominal or cultural Christians, they'll see Jesus as just another figure who exists right alongside the famous religious teachers in the history of the world. Maybe someone who fits right alongside a Moses or Elijah. But the glorious Jesus is the one to whom all of the scriptures point. Infinitely glorious. The divine son of God. He has brought this reality to the earth here and now. Moses and Elijah are there not because Jesus is their peer, but they have come to pay homage to their Lord and their King. All of the feasts, the festivals, the observations of the Israelites, all that they would do pointed forward to Jesus. And that's why Peter's suggestion was so off. He's trying to hit the rewind button. He did not know what he was saying. That leads us to the final reason that we are to consider today. The reason why Moses and Elijah are here. It is to show that just as God God has spoken through his prophets of old, he is now speaking to us through his son. This is what Hebrews chapter 1 says. Many times, in many ways, God spoke through the prophets. But now in the last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Jesus is God's final word. And this does not discount the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not what it does. It actually shows us the way in which we need to keep in mind that the work of the Holy Spirit is so closely tied to the work of Jesus. And how working through the word of God in our present day, what the Holy Spirit is doing is making the work of Jesus Christ true and real to people. And teaching about what Jesus has done and applying his benefits to us. Not only salvation, justification, God saying we're forgiven, but also sanctification. Our ongoing pursuit of holiness in our lives. And and we see the Holy Spirit in this passage when uh, we see the overshadowing presence of God's glory. We have seen this at various places throughout uh, the scriptures. We have seen it in the glory cloud that was present at Mount Sinai and in the wilderness, the cloud that would lead God's people through the wilderness. We saw it in Genesis 1, the the power of God that was hovering over the darkness of the deep. Once again, the Feast of Tabernacles is helpful here because the temporary shelters that Israel would build symbolize the overshadowing presence of God, which is a a presence of the Holy Spirit. Luke is weaving all of these things together to teach us that Jesus has come to accomplish God's final word of redemption, and it is a work of the triune God, Father and Son 
and Holy Spirit. Thus, in verse 34, this episode reaches a pinnacle, the very thing which Peter was wanting to symbolize in the building of that temporary shelter is now brought to reality as the glory of God condescends and overshadows him. Not only do we see the presence of the Holy Spirit, but we see the Father manifest his presence as well. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all present on this wonderful account of Jesus' life. And he gives the definitive answer as to who Jesus is. Is Jesus a prophet? That's been asked earlier. Yes, but he's so much more. Is Jesus the Christ of God? Yes, but he is a Messiah that you never could have imagined. Why? Because he is, as the Father says, the beloved Son of God. The command is to listen to him. It's to listen to him. In other words, the Father gives a commission to his Son. Commissioned with the authority to speak and give the ultimate answer to the problems of human life and human rebellion. He has come to give God's final word of redemption. In the Old Testament, oftentimes, the overshadowing presence of the glory of God is, is one of fire, one that fills people with great fear. But we notice that that doesn't really happen in this account, does it? Because with Jesus there, he is able to lead his apostles into that presence of the glory of God. Not only that, but this Christ will be the one who is able to present his people so blameless before the Father that he is able to send the power of the, of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people. That same presence of the glory of God in the Old Testament with the, the overshadowing presence, the glory cloud of the Holy Spirit, it is that same power that is sent into the hearts of those who believe in Jesus Christ. John chapter 7 brings all of this together in a really miraculous way. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was the last day of the feast, and Jesus says this. On the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus says, believe in me. And that overshadowing presence of the glory of God, all of that which the Old Testament was pointing us to, will be given to you. It will abide with you forever. It will be your comfort. Jesus is our freedom. Jesus is the scripture's fulfillment. And Jesus is God's final word. That final word, the power of which is carried on by the ongoing ministry of the Spirit. In the midst of a world that has so little certainty, so few guarantees, so much despair and depression, as God's people, we must cling to the promise that in Christ, the power of God will overshadow you and will cover you. He will be your strength and your shield and your salvation. The security that people ought to feel when they enter their home the security that maybe we all would like to feel when we go into our home, that is the security we must feel when we remember our great God. Psalm 91 says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler 
and from the deadly pestilence. He will overshadow you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Let's pray. So God, we think of the glorious Jesus, whom on that mountain you showed as the King of Kings, as the rightful heir to the throne, the one who would ascend. And Father, we wish to crown him this morning in our lives and in our hearts. We know one day will come when the world will see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But Father, we worship him as the King today who is able to save us, who is able to sanctify us, who is able to send the Spirit into our hearts that we might be filled with thankfulness and love to you and to our neighbor. Empower us unto those ends this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.